Well, there it is. Maybe you have a, a new Bible, or a, better yet, a study Bible. Maybe you got it for birthday or Christmas, and you're excited about it. You began to read it because you want to understand your Bible, and that's good. So you open up, you start reading in Genesis, and that's interesting, thrilling even. But as you keep reading and get past some of the more interesting stories, you get lost somewhere in the laws of Exodus or the minutia of Leviticus, and you wonder, man, I really know if this is all that interesting, and how does all of this fit together? So you might jump ahead and you might begin reading in the Psalms or the Proverbs or some other area of Hebrew poetry, and some of it speaks right to your heart, and you thank God for it, but you still just don't know how it fits together. And then you might go forward and start reading in the New Testament, and that's interesting, but the first four books seem to repeat a lot of the same material going over the life of Jesus. And then you read about Acts and the church history. Then there are a bunch of letters with some interesting names, but you don't know how they fit together. What's the difference between Corinthians and Colossians or Timothy and Titus anyway? And then you end up at the back of the book, and it's Revelation, and that's fascinating. You don't exactly know how to interpret it, but you're left with more questions than maybe you began. And then here you are living in a world that seems to be hard to understand as well. This has been a crazy year with the virus, with uh, things going on politically. It's a politically crazy year and uh, things you're reading about, hearing about in the news, and you wonder, is the world changing? Of course, it's changing, but what's going to be left of the old world that I knew? And it might create you being unsettled. What really is going on? Um, we had a Supreme Court ruling, and it doesn't look like that's going to be so favorable for Christians and may lead to, who knows, some persecution against Christians as we take a stand on biblical morality. And so these are just hard times. And so we may want to know, is there any constant thing in our life? And of course, we know God is supposed to be that, and the Word of God is supposed to be that. But how does the Word of God fit in with our life, and how do I know what is God doing in my world? What on earth is God doing in the world today? That's a great question. It's the title of our message. What on earth is God doing? And the answer is in the Bible. He tells us exactly what He's doing. And today, we're going to return to the book of Acts, and we're going to we're going to get an answer to that question. We're going to tie together our understanding of the big picture of the Bible and also thinking about our world and put those two together. Paul himself brought a message to some people back in the first century. He brought an eternal message, a message you and I need to hear today. He brought it to Jews and he brought it to Gentiles, so it's for everybody. He wanted them to understand something. He wanted them to understand salvation history. He wanted them to get a big, giant gulp and glimpse of what God has been doing through hundreds of years, no, thousands of years. So at looking at what God has been doing through all of that time, they'd be able to understand not only their Bibles, but also their world in which they live. How does the big picture all fit together? Sometimes we need a message like that where we back up, we widen the lens, we're not going to be as in many details as before, but we're going to get a, a big, giant scan of what God has been doing through hundreds and hundreds of years of salvation history. So that's what we're going to do today. And our text today is in the book of Acts. If you would turn there, it's in Acts chapter 13. It's a very long sermon by Paul, even though it probably was shortened and summarized here by Luke. Um, Acts chapter 13, and we're going to begin in verse 13. Acts 13, 13, 
And if we can make it, we'll make it all the way to verse 43. How about that for a challenge? Acts 13 and verses 13 through 43. Rather than reading it right now, we're going to read it as we go through. So you can kind of hang in there with me. So again, the big, the big thought this morning is if you want to know what God is doing in our world today, it's the same thing that God has been doing in the world for thousands of years. And that is he's saving individual people for his kingdom. He's saving individual people and bringing them into his kingdom. That's what God's doing. And so you don't really need to listen to anything else, right? What is God doing in the world today? He's saving people and he's bringing them into his kingdom. Now, there's three main periods of history that we're going to cover, and we're going to fly through these. So I pity you if you're trying to take notes today, but um, the three giant periods of history are going to first be Israel's history, that's in verses 17 through 23, and then Jesus's history, or at least part of his history there, in verses 23 through 31, and then the church's history, which starts in verse 32 through 43. But we've got to talk a little bit about the context of this sermon before we even get into those periods of history. Look at verse 13 through 16, because that gives us our setting. And I'll read. Now, Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets... The synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And look at verse 16. Paul took full advantage of this, didn't he? Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God. Listen. And then he launches into this long sermon we're talking about. So now I want you to remember where we are in our studies of the book of Acts. This missionary group had left Antioch near the Holy Land They were sent out by their local church, sent out by the Holy Spirit. They sailed through part of the Mediterranean Sea, and they landed on the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean Sea. Barnabas was kind of leading, and there was Saul, and then there was John Mark who was assisting them and helping them. This is what we describe as Paul's first missionary journey. So this is the second stop on the first missionary journey for the Apostle Paul. After witnessing the eternal gospel on the island of Cyprus... They got back into a ship and they set sail for the mainland to the north. Pamphylia was really what was uh, in uh, what was called Asia Minor back in those days. If you look on your map today, it would be in modern-day Turkey. It's in the southern area of that country of Turkey. And they arrive at Perga. That means they traveled over 100 miles, something like 112 miles. And they came to another Antioch city, not the one they started in, but Pisidian Antioch. So they went even another hundred miles. So they're doing a lot of traveling. Now, this city was a leading city of that region. It's actually up in the highlands. That's not all that important for what we're learning. But it was about 3,600 feet in elevation, just so you can picture the setting a little bit. It had a large Jewish population, and Paul is preaching the gospel to the Jews first, so he has arrived here, and he wants to proclaim the gospel about Jesus. And what does he do? He goes to the synagogue. Why the synagogue? Because that's the Jewish place of worship, right? And so this is an example of a synagogue sermon by the Apostle Paul. By the way, if you look back at Jesus' life, you'll see that he also preached in the synagogue. If you look in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30, you see that Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth gave a little bit of a sermon, 
uh, in the synagogue and they actually wanted to kill him. They took him to the edge of the cliff and were going to throw him off and kill him. But I wanted you to just know that because Jesus used the synagogue also to spread the gospel. The synagogue service was a lot like what you and I are experiencing right now. Our Christian services historically followed or tended to follow the way the Jews did their worship services. They would have the saying of the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And they would have a recitation of this, and then it would be followed by a prayer. The men would lead in prayer. Often the men would pray up front, and they would put their palms towards God in heaven. They would pray standing, and and they would lead uh, the congregation in prayer. Then there would be some reading. You know how we have a scripture reading? They would have a reading of the law, of the Torah. It would be followed by a reading of another part of their scriptures, what's called the prophets, and they would have a second scripture reading. Often there was a priestly blessing, and then there would be some exhortation from the passage, what we would call a sermon or a message, an expositional message. Sometimes also there would be a visiting rabbi or somebody of import, and they would want them to give a testimony or what would be called a word of encouragement, and they'd be allowed to come up front and they'd be allowed... Um, to say something. And that's what Paul got asked to do. Paul's a rabbi. He's a visiting rabbi, a very well-learned rabbi. And so they wanted to take the opportunity to learn from him. And he addressed them with this word of encouragement. He beautifully used this open door to bring the eternal gospel to these Jewish people. Side note, for those of you that love evangelism and try to figure out ways to do it in your culture, please notice as you go through the book of Acts that these very wise men fit their evangelism strategies to their culture. They took what the culture gave them and they ran with it, and that's what he's doing here. Now, it says that Paul addressed two groups of people, the Jews, men of Israel, and then any God-fearing Gentiles who are hanging around and learning about the God of Abraham and what the Scripture said about him. By the way, the same audience is stated in Acts 13 and verse 26. Then Paul said, in his word of exhortation, he's actually not just going to give a testimony, he's going to go way, way back in Israel's history and start not from the very beginning of creation, but he's going to go way back and he's going to give a sweeping message to sort of draw everybody in to understand how important this message about Jesus is. And so he widens the lens, as I told you, and shows how God has been working in the world. He's connecting what is going on in their day to the past, and that's what I want you to see as well, because what's going on in our world today is no different. God's still doing the same things he did before. Now, as we look at verses 17 through 22, I want you to note that God is the one that takes all the actions in this passage. It's God did this and God did that, and so we're going to be following what he did. It's God's work. Have you ever heard that little cliche, you know, history is his story, right? That's what's being told is God's story, how he's unfolding time and history and how humanity fits in it. And yet there are a lot of nations that rise and fall in battles and there's discoveries and there are buildings that are built. But what's God doing? God is working out salvation history. And that's very, that's very exciting. So we're going to see God taking these actions. All right. All of that was the background. Now we come to the first period of history. Israel's history. Again, still in verse 17, look at it. What did God do first? Now, this is after Genesis chapter 1 through 11. 
Chapters 1 through 11 form the foundation for everything we know about the universe because chapters 1 and 2 talk about creation and then chapters 3, 4, and 5 in Genesis talk about the fall and the sin, right? And if you were to go on, you'd find the flood next in chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9 in Genesis. And then you'd come to chapters 10 and 11 in Genesis and you'd see the table of nations and the Tower of Babel. All of that happens before this, but very early on in human history... God begins working, and he begins working with the fathers in verse 17. Notice what he says. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. There you go. That's something God did and God is doing. The God of this people, the God of the Jews, chose our fathers. So he skips early history of creation, fall and flood, and all of that, And he gets into the narrative that we would call Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 50. God chose the fathers. Who are the fathers? It's who? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then Joseph and Judah and the others, right? These are what we call the patriarchs of the faith, the patriarchs of the Jewish people. They were chosen by God. God was doing something. God was taking the initiative. God was working in human history, and he chose these fathers. They were chosen, why? Because God had a purpose for them in his eternal plan. In fact, I'm going to give you little verses along the way that are quotes from the Old Testament and New Testament that kind of explain all of this in a quick, uh, encapsulated way. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 37, encapsulates this choice. It says, because God loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them, and he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power. He was talking to the Jews and saying, do you know why you were delivered from Egypt? Because God chose your fathers. This is something he did. Now, in Genesis, you get to read a lot about the patriarchs' lives. You get to read about their tests and their trials. Remember what Abraham was told to do, to to sacrifice his only begotten son, right, on Mount Moriah? What a test he had to go through. But we're not going to get into any of those details. But you need to know, you'll read through that, and you're like, well, okay, God tested them and everything. But Paul is just sweeping through all of that history so you can keep the big picture in mind. You don't want to miss the overriding truth that God chose them for a purpose and he was working through them. Now, that covers hundreds of years. Now, then the tribe of Israelites, as they grew, they actually, because of a famine, had to go down into Egypt. You know about that, right? Look at the latter part of verse 17. And it said, and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Again, wow, that covers a very long period of time in human history. A lot of this occurs between the end of the book of Genesis and the beginning of the book of Exodus. They go down into Egypt. They're not all that large. Then they begin to multiply, and the Israelites grow down in the land of Egypt, which is not the promised land. They grew greatly in number and in wealth, so much so that the Egyptians began to fear them. You may remember that. Egypt is not the promised land, but they're down in Egypt, and so... The Egyptians enslave them. What comes next then in salvation history? Again, sweeping rapidly through it. It would be the Exodus, and this is in the last part of verse 17. It says, with an uplifted arm, God, notice again, God is doing the action, God led them out from it, from Egypt. God delivered the Israelites with his powerful arm. Who did that? Well, who was the human instrument? Answer, Moses, right? Moses was the chosen deliverer. Again, God chose Moses to do that work. 
And then you know all about the plagues, the plagues that came on Egypt. And then there was the Passover that had to be celebrated. And then the parting of the Red Sea. All of that is described in the early chapters of the book of Exodus. Next came what in Israel's, uh, in Israel's history? And the answer is the wanderings out in the wilderness. Look at verse 18. For a period of about 40 years, God put up with them in the wilderness. Now, boy, that says a lot put up with them. What does that mean? It means God did all of these miracles for them. He provided the manna. He provided the water. He provided the quail. He brought them to take over the land of promise, and they didn't believe him, right? And so he put up with them, and that meant meant that he turned them around, and they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and they started to die off until the next generation came all the way around to the opposite side of the promised land, and under the leadership of Joshua was finally ready to be able to enter the promised land and fulfill God's purpose for the nation of Israel that he had promised to the patriarchs. Wow. So God did bore with them. God put up with their unbelief. Here's a quote from Numbers chapter 14 and verses 33 and following. It says this, your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In the wilderness, they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. Boy, God was fed up with them, right? God was fed up with them, and he had to take the next generation in. So that takes us through the rest of Exodus, and then the giving of the law, which was done in the wilderness. So that takes us through Leviticus and Numbers, which describes all of the wanderings, and then the second giving of the law of Moses to the next generation of Israelites, and that's what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. Wow, we just swept through the first five books of the Bible. Now we come to what's called the conquest. So we're out of Egypt. They are supposed to get the promised land, but they don't have it yet, so they come to the conquest. That's verse 19. When he, God, had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. This is Paul's sermon still. Now, the 450 years refers to the time that they were in Egypt, plus the time that they wandered in the wilderness, plus the time of the conquest. The destroying of the seven nations is all described in the first part of the book of Joshua. Take the first half of Joshua, and that's what it's about. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, in verse 1, it names the seven nations that were going to be displaced. I'll quote it. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites, I hope I get these all right, and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And then it goes on to talk about what God would do. Those were the seven nations that would be displaced. They had forfeited their right to be in the land. The land was now promised to the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Well, when they conquered, flying through the conquest under Joshua, the second half of the book of Joshua is all about the distribution of the land to the 12 tribes. Each of the tribes got a portion of the land. The Levites were special because they served the Lord, but they all got their little land area, even the half-tribes did, and so that's all described in the second half of the book of Joshua. 
each in the promised land. You might think of Joshua as kind of God's general who led the armies of Israel after Moses died on Mount Nebo. And uh, when Joshua went into the battle and obeyed God's law, he won. And when he went into the battle and someone was disobeying God's law, they lost. And so they learned to rely on the Lord. All right, then came the next period in Israel's history, namely the time of the judges, the time of the judges. That's from the book of Judges up through what we call 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. Look at verse 20. After these things, he, still God, gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Okay, so we've got the book of Judges, and then the book of Ruth is in there as well, because that's during the time of the judges. And then the beginning part of 1 Samuel is also during this period of time called the judges. What were the judges? The judges, when you hear about judges, you think of what, like the Supreme Court, or some guys wearing black robes and making decisions and all of that. (laughs) Well... Uh, These judges, think of them more as military heroes, military heroes, because uh, in the land of Israel, they had no king, and they'd be invaded this way by a foreign army who wanted to take their land, and then they'd be invaded this way by a different uh, foreign army, and so there had to be men that would rise up and would spur on the faith of people to go out and battle for the land and to defend it, and that's what these judges were like, like Gideon and Samson and some of those guys, even Deborah, uh, a female judge as well. So this is the time of the judges, and it lasted for a couple hundred years, a long period of time there, and uh, they fought for Israel, and they beat back these invading armies. Samuel is the very last of these judges. Samuel's special because he was not only a judge, he was also a prophet, and he was also a priest. And so Samuel becomes kind of the transition out of the time of the judges. You had the conquest, then the judges, and now you're leading into what would be the time of the kingdom. And so Samuel marks that transition into the kingdom. So let's talk about that next in verses 21 and 22 as Paul keeps going. The kingdom is mentioned. Look at verse 21 in Paul's sermon. Then they asked for a king, that's Israel, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years, verse 22. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Now, what's all of this about? Well, when we read in 1 Samuel, we see, yes, indeed, Saul got appointed as king. King Saul, the first king of Israel. How how did he work out? Oh, he was a big disappointment. He was there for 40 years, but whether he really trusted God or not, it's hard to say. There were times he was clearly disobedient to God. The key words are found in 1 Samuel chapter 13 in verses 13 through 14. There it says, Samuel said to Saul, this is Samuel rebuking the king now, Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you to do. Saul disobeyed God's word. We don't need to know the details of it right now. He's just a disobedient king. And so he removed his kingdom, and then he replaced him with David. David was the man after God's own heart. David became the special king. David became a giant in terms of the program of God through the ages. 
You know, we think about the giants in Scripture like Noah. He delivered, you know, the world in the ark. And then you have Abraham. All the promises start with Abraham. And, and then you have, you know, the child of promise, Isaac. And then Moses is the, the lawgiver. And Joshua conquers the land. Well, David is very important. David's one of these great mountain peaks of the Old Testament. God's dealing with Israel. David becomes the personification of the coming king over all of the world. He becomes the personification of the Messiah. David becomes that important of a person. Just as the promises started with Abraham, just as the law was given through Moses, the kingdom would run through David and David's greater descendant. Now, what is all of this? Where does all of this happen in the Old Testament? And the answer is, well, you have to read the rest of 1 Samuel, and then you have to keep reading in the 2 Samuel. That's David's reign. And then you can read about, well, we won't get into First and Second Kings and all of that, but that's the time of David's reign. Now, one of the very special things that happened in David's lifetime was that God made a covenant with King David. That's called the, well, Davidic covenant, the Davidic covenant. And that's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. I'm going to read it for you. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. He's talking to David. When your, God is talking to David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Beautiful promise. Powerful promise. That is the Davidic covenant. David, you are the kind of king, someone is going to come from your loins, and they're going to come along, and, and that, that son of yours, I'm going to establish their kingdom, and it will never end. Please keep in mind the question we're answering. What on earth is God doing in the world today? He's saving people and bringing them into his kingdom, right? This promise to David to seat one of his descendants on the throne, a throne that would have no end, is what Paul really wanted to get to in his sermon. He fast-forwarded all of that history because he wanted to start talking about David and then start talking about David's greater son. This is where he wanted to get. Now, that little phrase, descendants of this man, very quickly looks through, oh, my goodness, 1,000 years of Israel's history. I mean, you talk about a fast forward, there it is in that one phrase. All of a sudden, Paul just whizzed through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and then you read the poetry, right? What do you have? You have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, you got the books of the Bible memorized, and then you have the major prophets. Do you know them? Isaiah and Jeremiah, Lamentations goes with Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel, and then you come to the 12 minor prophets, Right? Well, all of those prophets that are described from Isaiah down to Malachi, they all fit in to this period of history or one of the periods of Israel's history. And so you have to kind of take them and realize that you're reading the history first, but this prophet spoke at this time and this prophet spoke at that time, and then you can understand why their message was given. Same with the poetry. When you're reading Psalms, you realize that not all of the Psalms were written at the same time. This Psalm was written during David's life, and this Psalm was written during Moses' life, and this Psalm was written maybe for Solomon or for one of Solomon's sons or something like that. So he just whizzes through 1,000 years of Israel's history from about 1,000 B.C. up until about the time 
of the birth of Jesus Christ. This is amazing. He leaps over all of that in his sermon because he wants to talk about David's greater son. All those prophets, all those writings, there's so many lessons in there. But right now he wants to keep the big picture. And he, he, I wouldn't even say he skims this part of the history. He just kind of leapfrogs it. And he brings us quickly to the New Testament. Now, in your Bible, you can find the New Testament. Can you not? You can find where it starts. You know there's two big sections to the Bible. There's the Old Testament, and then there's the New Testament. Well, we just rolled to the latter part of the Bible, to the New Testament. And that brings us to the second period of history, Jesus' history. Jesus' history. That was Israel's history. Now Paul's going to talk to us about Jesus' history. Look at verse 23, because that's where he picks it up. The New Testament, another way of calling that is the New Covenant. The New Covenant brought a Savior King, a Savior King. Look at verse 23, the second part of it. God has brought to Israel a what? Savior, Jesus. Jesus was the main descendant of David. David's son, but David's greater son was Jesus. Now, when you open up the New Testament, what book do you start with in the New Testament? The answer is the gospel of what? Matthew, right? It's placed first in your New Testament. That's smart. I think that makes a lot of sense. Why? Because it starts with a genealogy. What does the genealogy prove? It shows Jesus' legal father was Joseph. Joseph was not his biological father because Jesus was virgin-born, right? But he had to have a legal right through his father to the throne of David, and that's what the genealogy in Matthew establishes. Jesus' lawful right to reign over Israel is confirmed by the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, the very first chapter of the New Testament. And then Luke, in Luke's gospel, provides an alternative genealogy, an alternate genealogy tracing Jesus' true human nature, his human descent, not through Joseph, but through his biological mother, Mary. And so that's why you have the two genealogies. As a man, he's connected back to Adam and, of course, to David, and then legally he's also connected to the throne of David. So the Gospels describe Jesus as being born and then declared to be this son of David, And not just any son, not just any other human being, but the one man who's to come into the world to be the savior of the world and to reign as king on that throne of David that was promised to be established forever. The four gospels only give us some snippets of Jesus' earthly life. Sometimes people want to know, well, what happened when Jesus was this old and that old? It's not important in the scope of what God is doing. That's why it's not in there. It's all just preparatory. Jesus grew up, you know, he was, he was baptized, he was circumcised, you know, and you can see a little bit about his wisdom. But really, you fast forward in the New Testament to Jesus when he's 30 years old and he begins his public ministry as presenting himself as the Savior and presenting presenting himself as the king of Israel. To introduce the life of Jesus to the nation of Israel, God chose a very special man, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is written about in all four of the Gospels because he was chosen by God to introduce the most important person ever in the history of humanity, Jesus Christ. 
Notice Paul states this in verse 24 and 25. After John, that's John the Baptist, had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, verse 25, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, the special person that's going to come into the world, the Messiah, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. John the Baptist bridges the Old Testament promises with the New Testament fulfillment. He's the bridge in between, John the Baptist. He links the two Testaments. He gives structure to our understanding of God's program, building up to the presentation of Jesus and then being announced by this great man, John the Baptist, and then the building of Jesus' kingdom, you see. John's ministry, the whole point was to get Israel ready for their king. Get Israel ready to be introduced to the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ, as we call him. The long-awaited Savior. Now he had come. John proclaimed this out in the wilderness. The kingdom of God is drawn near. Repent of your sins. And to prove that they were truly repenting, what did John ask them to do? What did John demand of them to do? To come down to the Jordan River and what? Be what? Be dunked in the Jordan River. You say be baptized. The word baptized means being dunked. You know, there's, there was no sprinkling there. They went into a river and they were dunked because that's what the word baptism means. He said, this is going to be symbolic of you admitting that you're a sinner and that you need cleansing and you're getting your heart ready to receive this king because he's a holy king. John made it clear that even though John himself was a very popular preacher with the people of Israel, And even though John was believed by vast numbers of people to be a true prophet, John made it very clear, I am not the son of David. I am not the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and do a menial task of a servant and untie the thong of the Messiah sandal. I shouldn't even be allowed to do that duty. I'm not worthy of that. In fact, in Luke chapter 3, verse 16, another snippet to summarize this. John answered and said to all the people that came and asked him who he was, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John is not the story. Jesus is. Verses 24 and 25 take us through all the rest of Jesus' life to his adulthood around 30 years of age, when right then Jesus started his public ministry. And then there was Jesus' public life. Look at verse 26. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, notice he's still talking to the same two groups of people, the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. What is God doing in the world? He's sending out a message of salvation so people can get saved, so they can join God's kingdom individually. Please notice Paul again directly addresses those in the synagogue that day. He calls them the sons of Abraham's family to remind them of their blessings, but he's also talking to the Gentiles, the nations, anyone who would fear God, anyone who would believe. And so he addresses them, the God-fearers. And the us that he describes there, when Paul uses the us, refers to a very special group of people announcing the salvation, the group of people called Jesus' apostles. The message of salvation. Jesus, the Savior, had a message, and they were proclaiming that very message on behalf of Jesus. 
What is the message about Jesus? Well, here Paul outlines it. Verse 27 and 28 and 29. First, the message is about Jesus' death and his burial. Look at verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him, that's the Messiah, nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. Verse 29. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. Amazingly, the long-awaited Messiah, the son of David, was killed, executed by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem in the first century. How on earth was God's program going to be fulfilled now? What happened? Was there a mistake? Did somebody blow it? Did, did God drop the ball? Paul knew that the rejection of the son of David by the nation of Israel was a huge stumbling block to Jewish people who lived outside of the land of Israel. And so Paul addressed the corruption of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Paul pointed out that the leaders did not follow the prophecies. Oh, they read them. They read the prophecies every Sabbath. They read them again and again. They knew what they said. They probably had some of them memorized. They didn't get what it meant. Oh, I'm so tempted to go off into how often people read the Bible and, and talk about the Bible in church, but they never get the meaning, but I don't have time to do that today. <laughs> Suffice it to say that this has been going on a long time, that people have blinders on. Even when they're reading the Bible, they can't get the basic message of the Bible. They didn't follow it. The irony was they're reading the prophecies, but they're blind to them. And so they condemn the Messiah to death. And this refers to the trials that Jesus went through when he was condemned. Again, this is written in all four of the gospel writings at the beginning of the New Testament and towards the end of each of the gospels. These corrupt Jews worked along with the Romans who were in power in, in that day to have Jesus put to death. Pilate himself even declared that Jesus was innocent. He had done nothing wrong to deserve of death, and yet he had him crucified on a cross. A snippet to summarize this is John 19, verse 4, Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing Jesus out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Paul decides also to mention Jesus' burial along with the death. Why? Because the burial is part of the good news. The burial is part of the message. The burial is included in all four of the Gospels as well. The burial was necessary to prove that Jesus had actually and truly died. And so when talk of the resurrection came next, there was proof that it was no hoax. He was dead and buried. And since God's purpose can never be thwarted, because God is almighty, because God is in control of human history, next comes the declaration in Jesus' life as we continue in his history that his history is not over. We next get to his resurrection and the proof of his resurrection, the appearances afterwards. Verses 30 and 31, look at them. But... Notice God's program is never going to be thwarted. But God raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 31. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. Yes, God was still working. 
And though the religious leaders were wicked and blind, God kept fulfilling his plan. By the way, Paul's sermon sounds very much like Peter's words when he gave his sermon on the day of Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2 where he talked about how Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And then Peter pointed at the Jews and said, you nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for Messiah to be held in death's power. And then the proof of the resurrection is being presented here in the many appearances of Jesus after the resurrection Jesus appeared to his chosen witnesses, his chosen apostles who came, up from, came down from the region of Galilee, and they came to Judea and Jerusalem with him, and they got to see him. They saw him crucified. They knew where he was buried, and then they touched him and saw him and ate with him after he was raised, not just once but many times, to confirm this man actually beat death. He actually destroyed the power of death. And they were the ones Jesus chose, those ones in particular, to go out into the world and to start preaching this message about Jesus to all the nations. They are his chosen apostles. They are his hand-selected ambassadors. It is to these apostles, everybody today, you and me in this room, everybody in China, India, Africa, South America, Europe, anywhere in the world, we are all indebted to the message of these men for what they saw about Jesus Christ to continue that proclamation of the message of salvation, the message of God's coming kingdom, the chance to come into that kingdom, the chance to be saved individually. They kept that proclamation going, and then they wrote our New Testament for us so that we would understand what we are supposed to say as well. It is to these apostles, all of us are commanded to listen to today. In fact, John the Apostle, when he wrote his first epistle, 1 John 4, 6, he very confidently wrote, we, he's talking about the apostles, we are from God. And he who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this, you know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And that summarizes Jesus' history. We come to the third and the last period of history that Paul wanted to cover here in this grand message. And it's in verses 32 through 43. And that is our time, the church's time. You are, you and I are 2,000 years into a period of time called church history, but it started back then. We are in this time period. This is where we fit. Look at verses 32 and following. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, verse 33, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. Really, I think verses 32 and 33 is the heart of the message and shows why they were bringing the message that Sabbath day and what we need to listen to. God made a promise to the ancient fathers. He fulfilled that promise in Jesus, and we're preaching that same message to you today. Guys, nothing has changed. And then the proof of the resurrection is given in the predictions that the Old Testament gave that the Messiah really would be raised from the dead. Look again at verse 33. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Verse 34, as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep 
and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. Verse 37, but he whom God raised did not undergo decay. So in other words, Psalm 2 declared the sonship of Jesus Christ. And then there's the quote from verse 34 from Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 3 to show the predictions of the resurrection in the Old Testament. And then the prediction of the Messiah not decaying is found in Psalm 16. And then in verses 36 and in verse 37, it shows that David could never have been speaking of himself about not decaying and being raised from the dead. He was not talking about himself. He was looking into the future to his greater son, the Messiah. By the way, Peter again makes this exact same point in Acts chapter 2, verses 29 and 30. Paul was making sure all of the people that day knew that these things that happened in God's salvation history happened for their benefit. It all happened for us. Notice next the benefits of believing this message in verses 38 and 39. If you got lost in all of that, I want you to bring your attention back. Look at verses 38 and 39, because here is where you read of the benefits for you personally from all that God has done in salvation history. And it's only a summary of it, really. Verse 38, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Verse 39, and through him, everyone who believes, oh, please listen to that, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Verses 38 and 39 is the appeal of the sermon. It connects directly to those people. By the way, it connects directly to you. We live in the same period as they did. What does God want from you and from me today. God has provided a savior, but salvation is not automatic for everybody. There needs to be a response. You have to respond. Verse 39 tells you the response you have to have. You need to believe. You need to exercise faith. You need to hear about what God has been doing throughout all of history, and you need to say, I believe that. I believe that with all of my heart. And if you do believe, there are two benefits for you. First, the forgiveness of all of your sins. Are you a sinner? Do you realize that you failed morally? Do you realize there's something wrong inside of you, that you failed God, that you've done wrong in your life? Do you know that there's a judgment? Do you want to escape God's judgment? Do you want to make sure that you'll never be on the wrong side of God? You can have the wiping away and the cleansing and the forgiveness of every last one of your sins through Jesus. That's a great benefit. And then the second benefit is your guilt is removed. There's not going to be any condemnation. Listen, there is a judgment day that's coming against all of evil, and the evil inside of you will be judged. You will be condemned along with the world. You will not get to benefit from the kingdom of God and all the blessings. You're going to be condemned unless that condemnation can be removed somehow from you. And that's what he's saying. Yes, you can be freed from the condemnation that the law of Moses would bring to you. And the law says, be perfect and love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself and always do what is right. And you look at yourself and you see, but I can't live that way. And I haven't lived in that way. So am I condemned? And the answer is God is willing to remove all of that condemnation. 
because Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. That's what's so wonderful about salvation and this message of salvation. If you believe there is, as Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says, no condemnation, none whatsoever, no condemnation for those of you who believe in Jesus Christ. Your future is, is forgiveness. Your future is getting to be in the kingdom of God. Your future is bright and joyous. But last comes the warnings against unbelief. What if you heard all of this and all you did was yawn and ignore it and you didn't care? Well, then look at verses 40 and 41. You'll be forewarned. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of and the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Here is the warning. If God has provided so great a salvation, but you neglect it, you refuse to obey it, then there still is a judgment from God that is coming upon you and, it, and that you are awaiting. God is telling you this is your chance here. It is foolish not to believe in God's promise. Scoffers are those who mock truth. When you mock something that is, that is true, you only prove yourself to be the fool because you mock the thing that would benefit you. You mock the very thing that was provided for you. And so you end up just fooling yourself and destroying yourself. Oh, we have a whole bunch of mockers in our society against the biblical message of salvation today, do we not? Just start in the American universities and then go to the American media. And then go to many of the American churches and they scoff this message. They scoff what God has been doing. They don't believe it anymore. They will be condemned along with the world. God will still accomplish his work. Even if they disbelieve, God will still do it. So be wary of them and don't join them and don't listen to them. Believe what God said. Well, this message had a happy ending. Please notice, as we close here, the gathering of the disciples at the very end, verses 42 and 43. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Do you get it? They were like, it finally clicked. They kind of saw how it all fit together in their scheme of things. They understood about David and his kingdom, and they got it about Jesus, but they, they wanted more. They were curious. Tell us more. Come back next Sabbath and teach us more. I hope you're hungry for the word of God. They were. Verse 43. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Some of them, Jews and Gentiles, on that very day, believed the message of salvation and got saved and even began following them and asking them more questions. Assumably, they kept talking outside of the synagogue somewhere. They, they couldn't even wait for the next week. They had so many questions, they had to get into it. And so Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue in the grace of God. Why? Because you're never going to be saved by doing good works. You could only be saved by believing in Jesus Christ, and that's called grace. When God gives you a benefit you don't deserve, that's called God's undeserved favor or God's grace, and that's the only way to get into the kingdom of God, by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And who gets the credit for that? God alone, right? 
It's all his work. This is the message of salvation. For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man can boast. We don't boast in our religion. We just trust in Jesus Christ, and he saves us. Brothers and sisters, God has been working his program for a very long time. He's not changing his program now. He's not going to change. He doesn't need to change. Nations come, nations go, movements rise and fall. People get turned into the left and to the right. What God wants us to do is to master the message and stay on target. Make sure you and this church stay on target. What are we about? We are about this gospel message. We are about uh, proclaiming this message so that individual people can believe that message, and when they believe, they enter now into the spiritual kingdom of God, and in the future, they're going to see the full glory when the kingdom comes in all of its physical manifestations down to this planet. King Jesus comes back a second time and reigns on the planet. That's what God is doing. He's been doing it since the time of the patriarchs with Abraham. He's doing it all the way through Israel's history, all the way through Christ's brief history on earth and then church history. That's what we're about now. We're not going to change that. We're not going to change who we are. 23 years ago when we started this church, that's what we dedicated Hope Bible Church to. That's who we are. That's what we're always going to be, Lord willing. That's what God wants us focusing on. Find your place in using your talents, your spiritual gifts, your energies, and everything you have to pour yourself out to promote that message in God's church until he comes because there's still others out there that need to get saved and need to enter into this kingdom. Amen? Father, please take this grand survey of your word, Lord Jesus, and please impress the importance of it on your people that they would understand it's not just a basic kindergarten gospel message but it defines everything we do as a church. Lord, may we love it and may we live it, even as we come and sing and worship you more. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.